0: Baseball's in the postseason now, and uh, the Cubs are in it. Anybody here Cubs fans? A few? Okay, a few Cubs fans. And when you mention the Cubs and the postseason, it is impossible not to think about a man by the name of Steve Bartman. Anybody recognize the name Steve Bartman? Raise your hand. Okay. Steve Bartman. It was October the 14th, 2003. And the Cubs were playing the Florida Marlins in the sixth game of the National League Championship Series. The Cubs are ahead 3-2 to in the series. They were ahead 3 to nothing in the eighth inning. Winning that game would mean the club's first trip to the World Series since 1945. There was one out, and the Marlins are at the plate. A catchable foul ball was hit down the left field side. As the Cubs' left fielder reached for the ball, lifetime Cubs fan Steve Bartman reached for the ball, too, from the stands. Bartman didn't catch the ball, but he deflected it just enough for the Cubs' left fielder to miss. Instead of being four outs away from the World Series, the Cubs ended up giving up eight runs in the inning. They lost the game. They lost the next game, too, and were out of the postseason. In the aftermath of the incident, fans were so angry that the entire stadium, en masse, started calling him all sorts of foul names. Bartman had to be escorted out of the stadium for fear of his life. Soon, the whole city of Chicago knew about Steve Bartman. In fact, the whole United States knew about Steve Bartman. Police had to stand guard outside his house. The family had to change their phone numbers. Bartman essentially hid himself in his home and has since given no interviews about it, even though he has been offered substantial sums of money to do so, he has declined every opportunity, both out of fear and out of shame, from the very public humiliation he received. Now that I've told that story, how many of you remember Steve Bartman? Yeah, a lot more fans. A lot more hands. Bartman's case is a very public shaming. And while you likely have not experienced shaming as public as his, if you've ever come into contact with shame, public or private shame, you know how life-altering shame can be. Maybe that someone in your life, an authority figure of some kind, maybe even your parents routinely shamed you for some reason. Maybe someone did something to you that was shameful. And even though it wasn't your fault, your mind accuses you, telling you that you're ruined because of whatever it is that they did to you. Or maybe it was something that you've done in your life some decision, some action, some set of actions that have brought shame upon you. However you've come into contact with shame, you know that it can be paralyzing. Shame can become a never-ending internal indictment on your very being, on your personhood. It tells you that there's something terribly and fundamentally wrong with you. Shame tells you that you're not worth anything and that you aren't worth being loved. Shame travels right to the core of your being. And it becomes, over time, it can become your very identity. If this morning you struggle with crippling shame for whatever reason. I want you to walk out of here today knowing that the only real hope for your shame is found in the gospel. And I want to show you this morning why I say that. If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it, whether it's digital, whether it's old school, hard copy, whatever form of the Bible that you have, I want you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and we're going to start looking in just a moment at verse 16. Mark chapter 15, excuse me, verse 16. We're near the end of a series that we've been in for some time. On the last days of Jesus Christ, we've been looking at the last half of the book of Mark, which covers the last days of Christ. In fact, right now, the passage that we're going to look at today is in the last week of Jesus' life. And more than that, we're on the last day of Jesus' life. It is Friday morning. Jesus has been abandoned by all of his closest followers, and he's been handed over to Pilate. Uh, he's been handed over by Pilate to be crucified. He's been flogged to the point that he is barely alive. And I don't want to pick up the reading now at verse sixteen. And uh, by the way, I would just ask those who are joining us through the internet. Read these verses with us as well. Verse 16 of Mark chapter 15. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they'd mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to Golgotha, and Mark tells us that this is Uh, He gives us a little note here just so that we know that this is the place of the skull. This means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, sort of a narcotic, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross, save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And we'll stop reading there. It's kind of odd to be reading this passage at this time of the year. I know that normally around you know, Good Friday, the weeks prior to Good Friday, we're reading this. But I think sometimes just being able to read it at a different time of the year gives you a new perspective on a passage like this, lets you see things that you don't normally see. If any of you saw Mel Gibson's film a number of years ago, The Passion of the Christ, you may remember that in the this in the depiction of this, there was a It was like a lengthy portion of that film that was devoted to the flogging of Jesus, the physical torture that he experienced. And to me, I don't know about you, but to me it seemed like that scene just went on and on and on, and it was horrible. And I don't mean to undermine that in any way, shape, or form. But what strikes me about Mark's depiction of the events that lead up to and during the uh, crucifixion I don't know if you noticed it, but Mark spends almost no time describing any of the physical torture. Back up in verse 15, he gives us one little short matter-of-fact phrase. We we read it last week. He says that that Pilate had Jesus flogged. And that's it. Like no more thorough discussion of what that flogging uh, would look like. I imagine that some of you who have Uh, been in church for some time, maybe you've heard sermons in the past about this and you've probably heard people go into great detail about what it meant to be flogged. But I think that Mark was more struck by the mocking and the shaming of Jesus. And he wants us to see that. He wants us to hone in on that, to really focus in on the fact that Jesus was mocked and shamed and insulted and and, and humiliated in this passage, because that's what Mark's emphasis is. I think that's what our emphasis should be this morning. And so I want to I want to look at three things this morning. I want to look at the extent of Jesus shaming. In other words, I want to want to see how much he was shamed, how far did it go, how bad was it, and then I want to look at Jesus' response to that shaming. And then finally, I want to I want to ask this question: How does Jesus' response? Affect our shame? If you have shame, if you live with shame, if, you, if crippling shame is a part of, of your very being, how does Jesus' response to shame affect your response to shame? Okay? So the, the extent of Jesus' shaming, Jesus' response to his shaming, and then how Jesus' response affects our shame. And so let's start with the extent of Jesus' shaming. And I wanna, as we, as we look at this, I just wanna begin with who in this passage shamed Jesus. I don't know if you paid attention to this, but almost everyone in this passage in this passage shames Jesus. The Roman soldiers shamed him in verses 16 through 20. Pilate shamed Jesus in verse 26 when he had the charge king of the Jews posted above Jesus cross. That was to make fun of him. Passers by shamed Jesus. You see that in verse 29. The chief priests and the teachers of the law shamed Jesus in verses 31 and 32. And even the two men that were crucified on either side of Jesus shamed him uh, as well in verse 32. And so if you add all of that up, here's what you have. The religious people shamed Jesus and so did the irreligious people. Soldiers Shamed Jesus, and so did civilians. Politicians shamed Jesus, and so did the governed. Thieves shamed Jesus, and so did law-abiding citizens. Jews shamed Jesus, and so did Gentiles. Even his own disciples shamed him by their absence. In short, everyone gets involved in the act of shaming Jesus very publicly in this passage. Everyone gets involved in it. And it's not just who gets involved in it. It's also how they shamed him. Look at it. The Roman soldiers dress him up like a comical king. And they spit on him. And they bow down to him. Not because they really believe it. Not because they're sincere about it. Even though they're bowing down to him, ironically, proclaims the truth about him. They're not serious about it. And so they do that to mock him. Imagine how ridiculous it must have looked. Here's a man beaten to a bloody pulp who can barely stand, wearing a purple makeshift robe, a crown made out of thorns. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that he had a reed in his hand that was supposed to be his scepter. He looked ridiculous. All of which was to show that the soldier's Uh, It was to show their contempt and their lack of respect for him. In verse 21, they parade Jesus through the streets for everyone in the city to make fun of him. And remember that this 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 is the great feast of Israel, the great celebration of Israel, the Passover. There are hundreds of thousands of people in the city now. It's most popular, it's most populated time of the year. Jesus is dragged through the city so that everyone can see him. In verse 24, they divide his clothes, which meant that they stripped him naked to hang him on a cross. Now, I know that every time you see a depiction of Christ on the cross, you see some kind of loincloth covering him. But that is not how they crucified people. The one who, think about this, the one who clothed the lilies of the field has nothing to clothe himself with. The one who made coats of skins for Adam and Eve when they were naked in the garden and had nothing but fig leaves to cover themselves with. He hasn't so much as a rag to conceal his nakedness from a staring, gazing, mocking, hard-hearted crowd. And then there's a note of anti-Semitism in verse 26 with the sign, I said it a minute ago, that they put above his head that said, King of the Jews, ha, the King of the Jews. The Romans despised the Jews. They held them in utter scorn because of their hope uh, to have a king of their own. They saw them as an odd people. King of the Jews, that was mockery. They crucified Jesus who has done no wrong between two common criminals as if he is nothing more than a common criminal. The observers hurl insults at him. The religious leaders mock him saying that he has saved other people but he can't save himself. Even the criminals heap insults upon him. This is a public shaming unlike anyone in history has ever experienced. As I was preparing for this, uh, for this, uh, to speak about this passage, I read a, a sermon from the well-known 19th century uh, British preacher Charles Spurgeon. And I want you to listen to what Spurgeon says. In fact, we're going to put it up here on the screen so that you can read it. The nobler a man's nature, Spurgeon says, the more readily does he perceive the slightest contempt and the more acutely does he feel it. That contempt which an ordinary man might bear without a suffering, he who has been bred to be obeyed and who has all of his life long been honored would feel most bitterly. Beggared princes and despised monarchs are among the most miserable of men. But here was our glorious Redeemer, in whose face was the nobility of Godhead itself, despised and spit upon and mocked. You may, therefore, think how such a noble nature as his had to endure. Christ, who was more than noble, matchlessly noble, something more than of a royal race, for him to be shamed and mocked must have been dreadful indeed. You might wonder, as we talk about all of that shaming, what was it that prompted all of it? Was it the miracles that he did? Was it the sermons that he preached, the Sermon on the Mount, for example? Did they mock him because he was a wise teacher? Wasn't any of that. Here's what prompted all of that mocking. the size and the exclusivity of his claims. That's what prompted it. The fact that he said he was the king, the Messiah, God in the flesh, the Savior, that's what prompted this public shaming. It was hatred in the hearts of people. And I hope you realize that even though you and I aren't mentioned in this text, That the size of Jesus' claims brings out a hostility in all of our hearts toward Jesus because His claims force us into an all-or-nothing decision about Him. We either have to adore Him or we have to despise Him. We either have to build our lives around Him or we just have to deny Him. But we can't live in the middle. And that infuriates us. Because we like to keep our options open. We all want to be our own lords over our lives. We all want to be our own saviors. And it infuriates us when anybody pushes us to a place that we have to make a decision like that, and especially about such huge claims. That's what it was that prompted it, was hatred. And even though we're not mentioned in this text, we're a part of it too. The extent of Jesus' shaming even extends into the 21st century to you and me. Every one of us who has ever ignored him, every one of us who has not built our lives around him, all of us, every one of us, shame him by saying that his life and his death, it really wasn't important enough to build our lives around. And so the extent of Jesus' shaming... It extends all the way into the 21st century. It was public, it was humiliating, and it extends all through human history. No one has ever experienced a shaming like that. I want to look for just a moment now at Jesus' response to that shaming, his response to that, shaming. If you didn't know this story, what would you be expecting Jesus to do here? Like, especially when they say, you know, uh, he can save everybody else, but he can't save himself. Come on down if you can save yourself. What would you expect Jesus to do? He looks like a goner. Things go from bad to worse for him. He's about to die. What would you be expecting, to, expecting him to do? And I would suggest to you that it probably depends upon whether you've seen any superhero movies or TV shows. And likely all of you have seen at least one of them. So I think what most of you would expect him to do is to come down off the cross. Somehow, he comes down off the cross. Somehow, he finds a way. When they mock him, it would be a great time for him to come down. That's how heroes express their heroism, isn't it? That they come down, they get away, they... They they they're able to save themselves in some way, shape, or form. But you might say, well, look, there's no way. I mean, he couldn't possibly have come down. His hands and feet, well, they were nailed to the cross. He couldn't come down. Listen to me. Let me tell you something. What kept Jesus on the cross? It wasn't the nails. He could have come down at any point. He could have snapped his fingers, and a legion of angels would have wiped out every person there. What kept Jesus on the cross was not the nails, it was love. Because if he comes down, he can save himself, but he can't save you. Commenting on this passage, um, pastor and author uh, Tim Keller um, mentions a movie that uh, some of you may recognize. After he mentioned it, after I read it, I thought, yeah, I've seen that movie. I can't remember when, I can't remember where. Some of you may uh, remember it. It's an old movie. It was made in 1938, and it was called Angels with Dirty Faces. Anybody remember this movie? Anybody seen this movie? Okay. It starred, it starred Jimmy Cagney and Pat Riley. Jimmy Cagney and uh, uh, I said Pat Riley, didn't I? I meant Pat O'Brien, sorry. Uh, Back in 1938, Pat Riley, not only was he a Lakers coach, but he was also just like this incredible movie star, too. No. So Jimmy Cagney and Pat O'Brien. They're two young guys who grow up in Hell's Kitchen uh, in the slums. Cagney's character grows up to be uh, Rocky Sullivan. He's a gangster. He's a braggart. He's full of himself. He's snarly. He's violent. He's like a celebrity gangster. And he kills people uh, at, at, at whim. Anybody who shows any kind of disrespect, he kills them. And all of the young kids of the city look up to him. On the other hand, uh, O'Brien's character grows up to be a priest whose name is Father Jerry. Father Jerry works in the slums and he works with at-risk kids works with all these kids who are poor and and who are going in in a bad direction, and they're imitating, many of them are imitating Rocky Sullivan, going into crime, getting into all kinds of trouble. And Father Jerry is trying to get them to go straight. Near the end of the movie, Rocky is caught by the police. He's tried, he's found guilty, and sentenced to the electric chair. The night before he's executed, Father Jerry comes to see Rocky, and he asks him uh, for a favor. And here's the favor. He asks Rocky to die a coward. He asks him to scream and to beg for mercy as the guards drag him away. And he says to him, he says, I want you to die with courage, but a different kind of courage. The kind of courage that only God and you and I will ever know about, Father Jerry says. kind of courage that's born in heaven. I want you to let the boys in my neighborhood down. You've been a hero to these kids all of your life. And now you're going to be glorified a hero in your death. And I want to prevent that, Rocky. Those kids have got to despise your memory. That's their only hope. They've got to be ashamed of you. In other words, what he's saying is, you throw away everything. Throw away your reputation. Throw away your name. Go out in humiliation and shame. It's either them or you. And Rocky is incredulous. He's like, you're asking me to pull an act to turn yellow so those kids will think I'm no good? Nothing doing, he says. I'm not going down a coward. You're going to have to think of another way to save those kids. The next morning at dawn, Father Jerry, along with the guards, bring Rocky out of his cell. And he comes out with a snarl, slugs one of the guards along the way. He's staying true to form. But when he gets to the door of the death chamber, suddenly he begins to squeal like a child, and he begins to cry, and he says, no, I don't want to die. Please don't burn me. I don't want to die. And he completely melts down and becomes an absolute coward, and he stays that way until the very last moment. And Father Jerry, when he sees that happening, they weren't particularly subtle in movies back then, he looks to heaven When he sees that happen, and you know that it was all an act for the sake of the kids. Here's the thing. We're those boys. We're those kids whose lives and eternities are about to go down the toilet. It's Jesus or us. If he holds on to his glory... We're going to go down into eternal shame. If he comes off that cross, we're going down into eternal shame. But if Jesus goes down into eternal shame, then we can have glory. Jesus was so infinitely great that he expressed his greatness and his heroism by not coming down off the cross. In the greatest act of self control in the history of the universe, the all powerful God became weak and stayed weak and took the shame out of love for you and me so that we could have the glory of God forever. And you see, if you don't understand that Jesus didn't just die for you, if you don't understand that he was also shamed for you, you don't understand all that Jesus gives to you. He experienced and endured the shaming and allowed it to happen, took it to bear your shame. He didn't just die for you. He was also shamed for you. And his response to it was to demonstrate his awesome power by taking it. Now, the question is, how does Jesus' response, how does that affect our shame? If you're here this morning and you live with shame, maybe you're crippled with shame. Maybe it's become your identity. Maybe all the time in your mind you hear the words of of some authority figure, your parent. Maybe it's it's your own uh, words saying that you're ruined. How does Jesus' response to our shame, uh, to his shame, affect our shame? Had Jesus not endured the shame that was thrown at him, had he come off of that cross, you and I would have been left with nothing but mind games to try to rid us of our shame. In other words, the only thing that you would be able to do would be to try to convince yourself that you're as worthy as anyone else. But how can you do that? How can you know that? How could you know that you're as worthy as anyone else? By what objective standard can we measure our value and our worth? Your bank account? I don't know. How much money does it take to validate you? Your success? I don't know. How much success does it take to validate a person? about the social group that you run in. Problem is, what happens when they get mad at you, when they ostracize you, when they move away or worse, die? Then what? How do you measure your value, your worth as a person? What is there in existence that could once and for all time objectively validate your worth as a human being and remove your shame? I want you to listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. We'll put it on the screen. The author of Hebrews writes, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that's you and me, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the fact that Christ suffered, that he took your shame, that he bore it. He's saying that the cross is the once and for all objective validation of your worth. Here it is in one sentence. Jesus bore our shame so that we might share his glory. Jesus bore our shame so that we might share his glory. This is the objective standard. That for once and for all can remove your shame and objectively validate your worth. That Jesus Christ bore it so that he might give you his glory. The grace of God demonstrated to you through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other way to validate yourself. You can sit around and try to tell yourself that you're valuable. But how do you know that you're valuable? That's just you talking. You can have other people tell you that you're valuable, but that's just them talking. And what happens if they get angry? There is only one way that your shame can be removed and dealt with, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the only objective way. It is the only thing in existence that can objectively validate you. That's it. Everything else is just mind games. If you have any shame in your life, you need to come out from under the disgrace into God's grace. The only way to keep shame from defining you is to allow Christ's glory to define you. That's it. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, I want to give you three things as we close. Just three things. Here's how you do that. Here's how you keep shame from defining you and allow Christ's glory to define you. Here it is. Number one, you have to confront the source of your shame. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that you have to go confront the person who, or people who caused you to feel shame. What I mean is that you have to confront the source of it. You have to understand where it came from. Where did it start? Maybe it came from somebody that was an authority figure. Maybe it was something done to you. You have to go back and you have to confront that. You have to deal with that. You have to process it. This is where counselors can help you a great deal to help you figure that out, to sort it out, to work through it. You have to confront the source of your shame. And then second, you either have to repudiate your shame, in other words, when, when it when it attacks, when it says you're worthless, that, that you're fundamentally flawed, that there's something wrong with you, that you have to repudiate it, say, no, that is not true of me. I have Christ's glory because I believe in him. You either have to repudiate your shame or you have to repent of your shame. And what I mean by that is that if you brought it onto your li- into your life by something that you did, some action, some behavior, you have to repent of that. Just own it before the Lord. And then every time it comes up that says to you, God could never love you, you're worthless, because of what you did, you repudiate it. Not true. I have the value of Christ. I have the glory of Christ. And then here's the third thing that you have to do. You have to preach the gospel to yourself. You have to preach the gospel over and over and over to yourself. You cannot change by just getting rid of something. In other words, you can't change by just saying, I'm going to stop feeling shame. You will never stop feeling shame. You can't change that way because nature abhors a vacuum. You change by reminding yourself of what Christ has done for you and the implications of what he's done for you. That's how you change. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is speaking, and he says this. He says that to the person who believes in him, he says, I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, what does that mean? Just It simply means this, that through belief in Christ, you are given an entirely new identity that is no longer defined by whatever happened to you in the past, or what someone said to you in the past, or what you did in the past. But your identity is defined by what Jesus did for you on the cross. That's what it means, that you have the approval of God. You have the applause of God. You have the worth and the value of Jesus Christ himself. Now listen, I just want to say it again. I am all for counseling. I really am. Uh, And sometimes I think even secular counseling can be very helpful to help you work through things and to process things. But I'm going to tell you something. This is something that no secular counselor can ever give you. The only thing that they can give you to deal with your shame is mind games. Only the cross of Christ can deal with Once and for all, your shame and objectively validate you. We have this saying around here, it goes like this Good psychology is good theology made personal. You have to take the truth of what Jesus did on the cross for you and work it deeply into your mind and soul until it becomes a reality in your life. It is your only hope. Nothing else can ever remove your shame or free you of shame. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. And I would just ask you, would you be willing today to just start working that deeply into your soul? Would you bow your heads with me? And if shame is a player in your life, in any way, shape, or form, would you just in this moment Would you repudiate it? Just just say to shame that it has no place in your life because you have the very glory of Christ, if indeed you have believed in Him. Would you just repudiate it? Or if there is something that you have done in your life that feels so bad that God could never love you, would you just repent at this moment of that? And would you just allow that to be paid for on the cross? Would you allow Jesus to bear your shame? And then in this moment, would you just preach the gospel to yourself? That Jesus Christ bore your shame and he died on the cross so that his very glory, his value, his worth could be given to you. And that whatever anybody said in the past, whatever anybody did to you in the past, whatever, whatever you've done in the past, that that's all that's all on Christ now, and that you don't have to carry it anymore. Would you just do that, Lord Jesus? Uh, I suspect in this moment that there are people in this room that are dealing with uh, just dealing with uh, deep cisterns of shame. Lord, at times they, you know, it just overwhelms them. Maybe it's become their identity. Lord, would you free them from that this morning? And then as they continue to preach the gospel, would you just continually free them from that shame? Lord Jesus, we cannot thank you enough. We will spend all of eternity thanking you for bearing our shame, for demonstrating your power just taking my staying on the cross and in so doing you become the hero of all of humanity for all of eternity and it's in your name Lord Jesus Christ that we worship and that we pray today Amen